How deep, how wide, how great is your love for me, for us, for all creation. We just sang those powerful words, those powerful lyrics rooted in Ephesians chapter 3, as Pastor Nathan just uh, read a moment ago. That's the starting point for our lives. Last week, we uh, finished the Soulful Songs of Summer sermon series, and uh, that song was, Oh, How He Loves Us. In fact, uh, Marco was kind of joking about how it was Valentine's Day last Sunday, because every song was talking about how God loves us, and that's the starting point. That's the foundation. That's what we build our lives upon, God's love for us. And then that love for us kind of allows us to go out into the world and figure some things out in life. And so speaking of God and our lives... Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever wondered what God's will is for your life. Raise your hand. Most people do, right? If you're a Christian, most of us at one point in time have said, God, what's your will for my life? There's a situation in your life. Lord, how should I decide? How should I move forward? Which way should I go? What's your will in this situation? What's your will for my life? Some variation of that question is asked by all Christians at some point in their life. It doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter how young you are, we often ask that. But it's especially, I think, kind of true for our students, right? Those who are like in the later high school, into college, getting their master's degrees, those sort of people are asking those sort of questions a lot. In fact, there's a professor up at Biola who observed, he said uh, he would hear his students often talking about this question about what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to study? What major does he want me to pursue? What kind of job does God want me to uh, go after? Does God want me to go into the ministry? What's his will for my life? Where does God want me to live? Who does God want me to marry? And there's all sorts of these questions that we wonder about. We ask God, what's your will for my life? The older we get, the questions sort of change, right? Should I take this job or not? Should I apply for that position or not? Should we have kids? Should we have more kids? How many kids should we have? Should we adopt? Should we not have children? Big questions. Should I change careers? Should I quit my job? Should we buy a house? Should we move out of state where we can afford to live? Should I retire? Should I move into the retirement home? When a loved one is deathly ill, Should we leave them on life support? Should we not? When we're faced with these big sort of decisions in life, we wonder, what is God's will, right? I mean, do you have any, I'm sure someone in the room this morning has a big decision that they have to make in your life, and you're wrestling with it. God, what's your will in this situation, And it could be a small situation, it could be a little situation, it could be a medium size, it could be whatever. We have these situations that come into our life and we wonder, what's God's will in this? And it's kind of good, it's an honest inquiry, it's an honest prayer, it's an honest question. But then sometimes we also micromanage God's will. Sometimes we even get kind of silly about it, right? Lord Jesus, should I wear the brown shoes this morning or the black shoes? I just need a sign from you, God. God, you know I'm having financial problems. I'm driving down the 57. I saw the lotto sign up there, the billboard, 45 million or whatever. I think you want me to buy a lotto ticket, Lord, so I could win that, take care of my financial problems. I promise, God, I'll give you at least 10% back. Sounds like a deal. Is that your will for my life? Heavenly Father, should I buy the silver BMW or the red Lexus? What's your will for my life? I mean, sometimes that gets a little silly. I don't think God really cares about that. I don't know if that's part of his will. 
Another part of God, the question of God's will is that often when we ask the question, God, what is your will for our life? We're not really asking a question. Subconsciously, we're sort of telling God, I hope that it's this really good thing for me, right? Because we have an answer in mind. We want it to be safe. We want it to be secure. We want it to be easy. We want it to be good. We want that part of God's will for our lives. We don't ever really ask the question, God, what's your will for my life? And we think, maybe God wants me to go to prison for the sake of the gospel, like St. Paul. St. Paul, who was shipwrecked, who was beaten, who was tortured, who was persecuted. St. Peter, who was crucified upside down for his faith in Jesus. St. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, he says this. He says, it is better, it is better if it is God's will, right there, if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. When we hear that, we see that it actually could be God's will for us to suffer for doing good. Right before that in verse 15, St. Peter says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. And you see, when we see those words, we start to get at the root of what God's will for our lives And it seems to be that God has a will for our hearts and our disposition of our hearts and the direction of our heart, the orientation of our hearts toward him. And that he also has a will for our actions, for our good deeds. And that sometimes those good deeds may bring about suffering in our lives. And sometimes the suffering that God brings into our lives is his will and is the best thing for us. Doesn't seem like that in the situation, but hindsight's always 2020. We look back at it and we say, Oh God, I knew what you were doing there. Now, our gospel lesson for today is Matthew chapter 22. And you see, sometimes we wrestle with these big decisions in our lives and we seek God's will in the midst of that, which is okay. But a lot of times, these questions that we ask, they're decisions that we are making based in fear, not in freedom. We think to ourselves, And we're afraid that we're going to make the wrong decision. We're afraid that we're not going to follow God's will. We're afraid that we're going to mess it up. And so we want to do God's will. We want to do it the right way. We want to get his will right because if we get his will right, then things are going to go well for us. We'll be walking in his favor. We will follow the formula and life is going to be safe, easy, secure, good, secure. It's funny because back in Jesus' day, the quest for God's will had a lot to do with that same sort of thing. It had a lot to do with commandments and rules and formulas and regulations. In fact, you know, in the Old Testament, right, we got the Ten Commandments, right? The big ten words. But he also, the Lord gives us a whole bunch of other commandments in the Old Testament. In fact, the rabbis would get together and they would debate how many there actually were. In general, they came up with 613 commandments in the Old Testament. They wrote them out. They would rank them. There was 248 positive ones that said, you should do this. 365 negative ones said, you should not do this. And they would sit around and talk about these commandments, and they would endlessly debate which one is higher, which one is lower, which one's more important, which one is less, which one superseded the other. They would debate. They would argue. They would fight. They would get lost in the minutiae in the small details of the laws and the rules, and in the end, they would entirely and totally and completely miss the point of the laws and the boundaries that God has given us in the world. We look back on that. We look back at the Old Testament. We look at the rabbis and how they wrote, and they talk about them. We're like, that's crazy. But if we're honest with ourselves, it can happen to us too, right? 
Like sometimes during Lent, right, people will give up certain things during Lenten season to, uh, to get closer to God, to, to be more in line with, their will, uh, with God's will for our lives. But sometimes we can get entirely and completely silly about it. I'm going to indict myself here. I remember back when I was in high school, um, in all of my deep spirituality, I gave up Coca-Cola for Lent, okay? Soda pop, you know? I was such a mature Christian that I was going to give up and sacrifice for Jesus and not drink any soda, soda pop for the whole entire Lenten se- series, season. And when I look back on that, I think to myself, well, it was just kind of silly. And during that time, though, I went on this mission trip to Mexicali. I was a youth. I grew up here at St. John's. We, we drove down with Azusa Pacific University, tons of high school kids, college kids. We went down to uh, Mexicali during the week of, before Easter, Holy Week, actually. We went down there to bring Vacation Bible School to a bunch of kids that lived in villages and parks, and we lived in this tent city. And it was like 120 degrees, I'm telling you. It was so hot. We were camping in these tents in dirt fields. There was no refrigeration, no air conditioning. And we'd go out during the day, and we'd teach Vacation Bible School to all these kids in the villages, and we'd come home at night to these tents. We'd work in our tails off, and it was awesome. It was dirty, it was hot, but it was awesome ministry because we were touching children's lives with the gospel of Jesus, with music, with love, with experiences that most of these kids would never have in their life. And their lives were transformed, and our lives were too. We were becoming more and more like what God wanted for us, more and more in tune with the love of God. And so we go back into that tent city late in the afternoon, And there, no refrigeration, no air conditioning, 100 and some degrees, we're sweating, dirt all over us, and there were these local vendors selling what? Ice-cold Coca-Cola, right? (laughs) Not the high fructose kind, we're talking the sugar kind, the good stuff, you know what I mean? And there I was, I had given this up for Lent, for my Lord and Savior Jesus. But on day four, I broke. I went to my youth pastor, his name was Byron, some of you know him, And I said, Byron, I gave this up for Lent, but I haven't had anything cold to drink in four days. What's God's will for my life? (laughs) Byron was a loving man, and he didn't say, Mike, that is the absolute most stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Go out there and buy a Coke. Who cares, man? But he did say this to me. He said, well, that's between you and God. Why don't you pray about it? He looked at me. He loved me. He understood I was a kid. I didn't know what I was doing with myself. But he said this, he said this, I do know that God's will for your life has more to do with your heart and your love toward God and the love that you are showing to all these children that God has placed in our lives right now. His will, Michael, is about love, not silly rules about drinking Cokes during Lent. And sometimes we kind of need in life, we need to boil it all down to what really matters to see what God's will is for our lives. You see, back in Jesus' day, the silly rules were actually driving the agenda. And the guardians of those arguments about all of these silly rules, those people did not like Jesus and what he had to say about drinking Coca-Cola during the Lenten season. So these leaders, they they tried to trap him. They riddled him with questions about taxes and about marriage and about the resurrection of the dead. 
And Jesus answered every single one of them. Jesus put them in their place. And then they come up with this other question, our text for today, Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so the Sadducees were one of the ruling parties, the Pharisees were another one. The Pharisees, they got together. Verse 35 says, one of them, an expert in the law, that means an expert in the Old Testament, he tested Jesus with this question. And he asks him right here, verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? There it is. Which is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? Which of the 613 rules is the top dog? Because if I find out what that top dog rule is, then I can follow it to God's will. I can be walking in God's will. Then life will be safe and secure and blessings for me will flow. But you see, on this list of 613 rules, there are all sorts of rules that you look in the Old Testament. One of them is this. If you're a Nazarite, you can't eat grapes. You can't eat fresh grapes. You can't eat dried grapes. You can't eat the kernel of a grape. You can't eat the skin of the grape. One of the rules is you cannot destroy a fruit tree. One of the rules is you cannot mix wool and linen together. And you look at these commandments and you're wondering, sounds a lot like drinking Coke during the Lenten season. And Jesus kind of throws all of that out. Jesus, in verse 37, he boils it down to what matters most. He replied, love the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6 that Marco just read a moment ago, the great Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, love him that way. In verse 38, Jesus says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. This is what matters most. This is the most important thing. This commandment. And then he says, you didn't ask for it, but I'm going to give you the second. In verse 39, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law, all of the prophets, they hang on these two commandments. And so basically, Jesus was saying, it boils down to two things. It boils down to one thing, love, and it boils down to the two aspects of love, loving God and loving your neighbor. That's what the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments are basically divided into that. I carry around my own stone Ten Commandments with me. And uh, these are heavy. But right there, one, two, and three, it's love God, all right? Four, five, six, seven, and eight, nine, ten is love your neighbor. That's what the Ten Commandments, that's how they're split up. If you look at them, we're going to talk about the love your neighbor part next week. But this week, we're focusing on that Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And by the way, if you don't want to carry around your own stone tablets, you can get the small catechism on your iPad, all right? Look it up, or your iPhone, it's free. It's a really cool thing. You can review it with your family. Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What Jesus is saying there, he's saying, love God. Love God with everything you got. Love God with your whole being. Love God with your will and with your convictions and with your ideas and with your thoughts and your emotions and your actions and your words and your focus. Love God with sincerity. Love God without reservation. Love God with your full capacity. Love God with passion. Love God with your resources. Love God with your natural abilities. Love God with a single-minded and complete devotion to him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your 
strength. That's the first and most important thing. And when we know that, when we ask ourselves, what's God's will for my life? It's kind of easier to make decisions. First, love God, then love your neighbor. And what does that look like? What does it look like to love God? On the Ten Commandments, right? Anybody want to come up and recite the first three for me with Luther's explanation? Do we have any kids? How about you in the front row? You want to come up and do it? No, I'm just kidding, man. I'm not going to make you do that. I don't even know if I could do it. All right. But the first three commandments, what are they? Don't have any other gods. Don't misuse God's name. And remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. It's all about loving God. And I'm telling you, my friends, if you are in the room here this morning, you are 100% right now at this very moment walking in God's will for your life. You are here right now worshiping him alone. You're not worshiping some other God. You're not worshiping the God of materialism. You're not worshiping the God of capitalism or our culture or politics. You're not worshiping Buddha or Muhammad or whatever. You're worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're worshiping the triune God. You are using his name with honor and with glory as you pray to him, as you sing to him, as you confess your faith. You are honoring the Sabbath. You are making it holy. You are here today walking in the rhythm for which God has created you to worship him, and that's God's will for your life. It's his will to feed you his bread and wine, the body and blood of Jesus in just a moment. It's his will that you are here knowing that you are part of something bigger than yourself It's his will that you come and experience his radical, otherworldly, divine, and transformative love amongst God's people this morning. That's his will for you. The heavenly father sent his son to die for you. And when he did that, he showed every one of us in the room what it means to love someone else with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and it takes a whole lot of strength to die for someone on the cross. What's God's will for my life? Should I major in art or should I major in finance? Either way, God loves you. Should I adopt one kid or five kids or have three or have none? Either way, God loves you. Should I choose that career? Should I retire from this job? Should I move out of state? Either way, God loves you. Should I get married or not? Either way, God loves you. Should you drink Coke during Lent or not? Either way, God loves you. And that's where it starts. That's the starting point. That's the foundation. 1 John 4, verse 10 says this. It says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. First John chapter 4, verse 19. This was actually the theme verse of my uh, wife and I of our wedding and our marriage. It's a great theme verse for life. We love. We love because God first loved us. It shows there that it's possible. It's possible for us to actually love. It seems like it's hard, right? It seems like really challenging to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It seems really challenging to love our neighbor as ourselves, and it is. But it starts with God's love for us coming into our lives, being in rooms like this, worshiping together, going in relationships like we have with each other. And when we ask ourselves, what is God's will for my life? 
When we center and found, put our foundation upon God's love for us, we are able to make decisions in freedom and not in fear. We're able to know that we can choose a whole bunch of things, and that was going to be in line with God's will for our lives and his promise to be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. We know that we are able to say and hear Jesus' words. We're able to cut out all the excess, all the cacophony, all the noise, all the sound. And when we have a huge decision to make, we hear the word of Jesus say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind.